Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. So I tend to think about American history as a tug of war between these two diametrically opposed forces. Hmm. We have a country that is founded at its inception with a explicit racialized caste system, right? That we had defined what it meant to be white and that that set of people had access to full citizenship. Um, rights were recognized as fully human. And then you had indigenous black uh, people here who were defined as less than that. And that over the course of our history, we've seen a tug of war between forces that would seek to make our democracy a multiracial democracy, to get that full citizenship for everyone, regardless of race. And on the other hand, you've got forces that would seek to pull back, to keep things the way they are, to retain a status quo. And, and so what we see over our history is that at almost any point you go to, you have forces who are pulling in both directions. Very often, we focus on those forces of anti-racism, whether it be the civil rights movement or the abolitionists. But equally important in understanding our history is understanding those other forces as well on the other side of the rope and the ways that they are tugging. And so in moments when there is the perception or even the reality of real advancement towards multiracial democracy, we always, as a culture, as a society, as citizens, have to be braced for that pullback from the other side of the rope. That's Wesley Lowry. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of the brand new book, American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. I'm Brian Stelter, and I just want to briefly welcome you here to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. We'll get right back in it with Lowry now. I've known him for over a decade. I find him to be such an important thinker about topics of race and justice and media. And this new book, you know, it's about our current political moment as well as the past. It's both a history lesson and a glimpse into the future. So, Wes, let's get back to it. What you're describing here, the tug of war, it's the white lash. Exactly. Precisely. This, this idea that change always feels uncomfortable, right? And that when we think about people advocating for things, they wouldn't have to do that advocating. They wouldn't have to do that fighting if there wasn't someone with a vested interest in things remaining the way that they are. And what we see in our nation's history is that in moments where we take steps towards a multiracial democracy, there is a backlash and a violent backlash on behalf of people who are socially coded as white in our history, legally coded as white in our laws, 
against changes that they perceive as now putting them at some type of disadvantage, even mm. if all that's happening is the leveling of a playing field. And we're going to talk about those recent occasions in history, but let, let's talk about what happened in the news just in the days since your book was released. Uh, the Supreme Court last week striking down affirmative action at universities. How did that news hit you when you were out promoting this book, talking about the white lash? <laughs> well, you know, it was, so on the one hand, it was expected. We kind of knew this was coming. This has been a project of the conservative legal movement for decades, but I think that very often we have this idea in our head that, especially for those of us who were born and who grew up in, in a multiracial democracy, in an America where there was a level of equality under law, even if it wasn't perfect and even as there were still things going on, right? That there's this belief sometimes that things are inevitably going to get better year over year. Mm. And, and I think that there is this moment when you see something like the end of affirmative action policies, uh, over which I think there's a lot of fair and reasonable debate about whether or not they applied perfectly, whether or not they achieved their desired ends, but something that was broadly seen as the pursuit of some remedy, some step to be taken to make up for all of these years of, of inequality, and the high court essentially saying, well, no, it's racist to do that. Right. This, like the, like the Supreme Court of the United States essentially affirming the idea of reverse racism that no, mm. you can't be extra nice to black people because you were, we were so terrible to them for so long. And I think for a lot of people that feels kind of strikingly regressive. Donald Trump, uh, who we'll talk about uh, in this episode, he talked about affirmative action in the 1980s in a way that I think is relevant today. Let's listen to that clip. A well educated black has a tremendous advantage over a well-educated white in terms of the job market. And I think sometimes a black may think that they don't really have the advantage or this or that, but in actuality, today, currently, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great, I've said on occasion, even about myself, if I were starting off today, I would love to be a well-educated black because I really believe they do have an actual advantage today. This is interesting for a few reasons, right? One, hmm. it reflects this belief that is by the end of the Obama years, how so fast, fast forward 30 years is held by a majority of white Americans, but it reflects this belief that as a white man, Donald Trump is in essence discriminated against in some way. That the system has been bent to so advantage a black man that Donald Trump, a well-off, born into money, white real estate developer is somehow facing some type of structural disadvantage, right? Disadvantage, I a, right. I think it's really interesting to see him expressing that and articulating it. Again, this is, this is as early as the 80s, because in a lot of ways, that really becomes the core of the Trump political ideology, right? That there are these advantages, that the system is rigged against people like him, white, ethnic, that people with silly names from scary places or who aren't even real Americans can get elected, but the whole system is rigged against him and they're coming over the border and they're stealing your jobs and the deals are unfair. And you think back to the rhetoric of the Trump campaign and so much of it was, hey, I'm one of you. The system has been rigged against us and I'm going to fix it. And we see that in these explicitly racialized terms going back decades. Mm. 
Right. And, and then we hear it on the campaign trail almost 20 years later. Um, mm-hmm. what, one of the most important aspects of your book is the way that it brings people back to the Obama years and reminds us of some of the the elements of the Obama years that then led to the Trump years, led to the Trump presidency. Um, and I, and I really appreciated the refresher, the reminder, because I've got memory loss. I think it's easy to forget what the Obama years felt like, what Obama's election night felt like. And that's, I think, why you opened the book there on election night, November 4th, 2008. If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, who still wonders if the dream of our founders is alive in our time, who still questions the power of our democracy, Tonight is your answer. Tell me what you saw when you went back and rewatched the broadcast and watched Obama's speech and, and went back to that moment in time. Well, you know, I think you make such an interesting point, Brian. If at an individual level, we have memory loss, right? Think about the ways that it works as institutions, as followers of news and current events. The happenings of 2007 or 2008, it, it literally... Tens of thousands of news cycles ago it can be hard sometimes, even as we catch the small changes day to day, it can be hard to see the full breadth of a story when it's happening in real time. And so yeah. it was fascinating for me to look at the Trump years. It felt important to contextualize those with the Obama years because of the, the many ways that the Trump years were a clear response to the Obama years and the clear contrast between the two, which then required starting at the beginning of the Obama years, watching the news coverage from the night of his election, and and just seeing, first of all, frankly, a level of optimism in politics that has been absent in the years since, that if you think about it, by the time Obama is running for re-election in 2012, even by the time of the congressional shellacking in his terms in 2010, the Obama administration is very much on the defensive. It's no longer the same type of lofty, we're going to change the entire world and like join our team. There is a sense of, we're trying to change the world, they're trying to stop it, but please don't let them stop it, right? And even in his very optimistic tone, it starts to shift. By the time you get to 2012, where he has to run for re-election, much less 2016, it's a politics that's much more divisive, right? That, that the Clinton campaign is running certainly on a dream for the future, but also on a don't let this guy become president. Donald Trump is running on fire and brimstone. And by the time we get to 2020, Joe Biden is running on let's make America normal again and get away from this stuff, right? And so just this pure wide-eyed optimism of the Obama years, but then secondarily, a, and it's impossible to describe it as anything but naivete. Um, and I don't mean that as like an attack, really, but just kind of as an objective observation. We had this moment that was of unquestionable historical significance. Our country had elected a black president. Right? This is a massive moment in our history. But I think that in our attempt to, in our being media, the press, public figures, in our attempt to explain what that history meant in a contemporary context, we got out over our skis on this idea about what this might mean for 
a post-racial America. And it does mean we fix the problem and if we solve things and, and will Obama usher in some new era of racial harmony that's never been heard of before. And I, I mean, I, I think that anyone, no matter their politics or background, would conclude that did not happen, <laughs> right? Like you know, clearly that, that is not what happened. And what I would suggest is that history, I think if we had been better rooted in understanding of our history, we would have known that that was not what was about to happen. And in fact, much more likely was the complete opposite. Because of the tug of war, right? Because of the white lash. And we want to believe, all of us do, this isn't racialist, we all want to believe that we're like intrinsically better, more advanced, more evolved than generations that came before us. So we like to say, well, yeah, just because America responded to this thing this way every other time in its history, we wouldn't do that. We're, <laughs> we're totally different, right? Those, those old people, they died off. And now our generation, we know how to. And look, as a journalist, I'm open to the idea that one day such a generation of people will exist. What the <laughs> facts show is that this generation of Americans responded the precise way that every other generation of Americans has, which, which is a massive anxiety and backlash born of the perception of racialized advancement, right? The mm. sense that there still is a tribalism, there still is an us versus them, there still is a debate over who is truly American and who has claimed the promise of American freedom. And that as that promise and the, is expanded to other people, a lot of folks in our country get very upset about that. And it comes out in a lot of different ways. But what we saw in the years that followed Obama what was not historically surprising. All right, everybody, stick around. We will be right back with Wesley Lowry. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com hive today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. I love talking about this because it's a form of history that we all know because we were in it. We lived it. And yet, again, it started to already fade from our memories. I have a piece in Vanity Fair in the summer issue all about this sense of a, like Biden and Trump. It's a repeat episode. You know, and why, why are mm-hmm. we going to live through a repeat? It's because people already forget what happened in 2016. People, you know, we, we, we have forgotten about the nativist campaign that Trump ran, the, the vow to ban all Muslims, all of those moments from 2016, those, those sickening moments. You know, we're going to live through them again. We're, we're destined to. Listen, Wes, I feel like I've buried the lead here, or at least the lead of your titles, right? We're talking about your new book, but you're also one of the sharpest media critics in the country. And, and you were talking just a moment ago about the media's naivete about what was going to happen after Obama's election. Uh, what happened after Obama's election is birtherism. And Trump leads the birtherism charge. Here's just a quick clip to remind us. The fact is, if you're not born... In the United States, you cannot be president. He is having a hard time. He spent millions of dollars trying to get away from this issue, millions of dollars in legal fees trying to get away from this issue. And I'll tell you what, I brought it up just routinely, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, a lot of facts are emerging, and I'm starting to wonder myself whether or not he was born in this country. So it's not going away in your mind. Donald Trump, who we all know was born in this country, Mm -hmm. all you have to do is read the side of his building. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All you got to do is read the side of his building. <laughs> That's the Fox and Friends clip. That's when Trump starts calling in every week to Fox and Friends. He literally begins his training as a, a Republican candidate for president on Fox every week, and he does it with birtherism. So let's talk media criticism. What is that moment and what does that say about Fox and about Trump that birtherism drives him toward the nomination? I think that in the press, sometimes we have a uniquely difficult time grappling with the subtext. And again, I think this goes back to our inability or unwillingness sometimes to place things in a historical context. And I think Donald Trump played us like a fiddle on this, did a brilliant job of this, much like some predecessors of his, uh, Joe McCarthy specifically. We have a very hard time with people who have big platforms who make baseless claims. Because, you know, McCarthy's walking around claiming he's got a list of communists. He never has the list, right? Yet what does he do? Uh, he makes the claim. We repeat that he's made the claim. And what happens? More Americans believe there is a list of communists <laughs> serving within the Justice Department or within Hollywood, right? That by the very nature of repeating a lie, you spread the lie. Now, what happens when that lie is uniquely calibrated to play to people's anxieties in order to win their loyalty, right? I don't know about that Barack Obama guy. I heard he's not even born here. I heard he's a secret Muslim. Why won't he release his birth certificate? A lot of people are asking this question, right? All that does is plays to a factually baseless, but also a rhetorically prejudicial instinct, right? Here's the thing about prejudice. We all have prejudices. We walk down the street, we say, oh, I think that person looks attractive. I think the person looks unattractive. They look friendly. They look like we all have at times a skepticism of people who are different than us or, or a familiarity or, or a feeling of safety with people who are similar than us, right? It's human. The difficulty becomes when our society and the institutions in our society, our media, our pop culture, when they reflect back 
those prejudices to us, when they justify them, it makes us feel more comfortable. So I don't, I don't know. I feel a little weird about this guy with the funny name becoming the president. Where exactly did he come from? And now I turn on television and a powerful person is on TV all day saying, hey, I feel kind of weird that this guy's been elected president. Where is he really from? Well, suddenly I've been granted permission to express and to have pride in an instinct that I actually should be repressing. No, I should be giving this guy a chance. I should be judging him on the merits. I shouldn't Mm. be just responding to the fact that his name is Barack Obama and he's a different skin color and has a different background, right? When we grant someone the, the platform that comes with publication, we put your words on the front page of the New York Times. We put your words on CNN, on CBS, on Fox, wherever, right? We are exposing your ideas and your expression of them to our audiences. And I, I think that that really does, um, it, it really contributes to what we see happen in the years that, that follow. But it really challenges, I think, one of the doctrines that we think about in media, right? That we like to butcher the old Brandeis quote that like sunlight is the best disinfectant. Well, first of all, that he was talking about government corruption, not, not the press, not the media. He was saying that like if your city council member is stealing things, there should be more transparency so you can find it, right? Ah. That, right? That was the context of Brandeis was about access to information about our government, right? Mm. Not about writing a profile of Donald Trump or Richard Spencer. Secondarily, right? Prejudice is, is a weed, right? It's something that, that is rooted in, in our soil and that if you put sunlight on it, it grows. <laughs> it's, we're feeding it the oxygen. And so what we have to do is we have to pluck those weeds out and throw them in the, in the ash pile, not say, let's shine a big light on them over and over and over again, at least not in this type of way, right? When we're talking about interpersonal prejudices. I mean, this gets to something that continues to come up over and over again in our media, which is, you know, how much responsibility do these broadcasters and bloggers and podcasters and all of them have when someone takes the words too literally and takes steps and commits violence? I just noticed this the other day, I'm reading through all these Dominion transcripts and January 6th transcripts, writing a book about a Fox and Dominion and all that. And Kaylee McEnany keeps getting asked by Liz Cheney, well, you know that all of these Trump defendants, they say they went to the Capitol and they rioted because of Trump, right? And she says, well, I think that's only the responsibility of the person who committed the crime. You know, she, she will not at all a- accept that her words or anyone else's words may have had any influence at all. And you make it very clear in, in your book that we let ourselves off too easy if we say it's only the criminal who's responsible. Oh, of course. And, and I think that we in the media as an institution have a real hard time with this because we tend to be, as individuals and as a collective, we tend to be, I think, understandably reactionarily free speechist, right? We all kind of skew in that direction in part based on what we do. And and I understand that and I get that. But I think that there is something important for us to think about. It's our job as facilitators of the public square to bring that context and that understanding and to try to push it into productive places, right? There's a, there's a um, sociologist, Gordon Alpert, who did a study about uh, how prejudice operates. And he writes about how you can very clearly chart how in 
massive acts of racial or ethnic violence in the Holocaust in Rwanda. I mean, he was writing before Rwanda, but that, that would be another example, right? In these acts of societal racialized violence, how you can trace and track how the demonizing rhetoric starts with, well, the Jews are dirty and they're bringing disease and they don't com- and they commit all these crimes. They don't follow our laws. They're they're taking from you and I, you don't start by arguing in favor of the drastic policy solution or the drastic act of violence. You start with the dehumanization because what happens is that prejudice operates along a spectrum. Once someone has been dehumanized, you're able and willing to treat them like they are less than human. That you start with a, a prejudice that is normal, that, that, is, that is human. That person's different than me. Now a politician is talking about how they're different. So now I feel comfortable segregating myself from them. They stay over here, I stay over there. Then the next step is I feel comfortable actively discriminating against them. I'm not going to hire that guy, I'm going to hire a different one, right? Now I might feel comfortable being interpersonally violent, right? Snapping or attacking or hitting or punching. And from there, then we become comfortable committing much more aggressive acts. And so I say all that to say, it's why that speech on that first end of the spectrum matters. It's not that every single time it results in a genocide, right? But we know that when then moved this way, this is where things lead. You, you mentioned earlier that we forget so much of, not even just 2018, 2016. People forget that Donald Trump had called for an outright ban on Muslims coming to the United States of America, right? A blatantly prejudicial policy, right? The banning of an entire people group based on how they worship um, in the United States of America in 2016. We forget, we forget that at one point he was touring the country with what he called, quote, angel families, the families of people who had been killed by undocumented immigrants, right? This is a place straight out of, but right? I mean, this is, this is Hitler saying these are the victims of, of Jewish crime. This is the, like, this is a, a play out of the playbook of some of our most historic bigots. And, and I think we just failed. It was very hard to fully capture it. We'll be back in just a moment. America has a problem. One that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. I'm Brian Stelter. So how do we uh, address this forgetfulness? <laughs> uh, I know one answer is to write books, but what, what else <laughs> do we do? What, how, I mean, because I, I think it's, it's, it permeates this entire conversation, uh, especially as we head into another election cycle. Well, and I think it's what's really hard. And again, this isn't a fault of the individual practitioners. It speaks to a much more structural issue within the institution of the media is that the pace at which we work, the payoffs, which are fundamentally capitalistic, 
ratings, subscribers, clicks, traffic, all, all the above. We move so quickly that it becomes very hard for us to ever stop and fully digest our food, right? What really happened yesterday? What's really going on? This person said this thing. Do they always say it? What does it mean? What did, how does this fit into the bigger American story? And they're, what, and again, that's not to say that that's the job of every newspaper article can't be a book. <laughs> every, every cable news panel can't be a, you know, a frontline documentary, right? But we would probably be better off if more of our broadcast journalism was more like a frontline documentary and more of our written articles were more like books than what we're getting, which is a lot of stuff that is very uncontextualized. Right. Decontextualized. I mean, just thinking about the Trump years in that way, how often was he described as the leader of a nativist movement? How often was he described as a demagogue, as a narcissist, as a champion for white resentment? Yes, all of those labels and all those descriptions were applied at certain points by certain folks, but at least the way I remember it, maybe I've had short-term memory loss or long-term memory loss, that's not the the way that, you know, the evening news would typically describe the candidate or the president, even though those were all factually accurate. Certainly not. But, but as you know as well, though, when we don't have time to fully contextualize, it can feel like name calling, right? That, that, that it's, it's when you place the comments yesterday into a, and he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. Think about the recent Trump interview with Brett Baer where he lays out, you know, Trump, you know, Trump says he hires all the best people at X, Y, and Z. And then all these people you've hired have said this about you, and then this about you, and then this about you, and then this Isn't about you. Isn't that an you. amazing clip? We played that clip a couple of weeks ago because it was such a great feat of interviewing to lay it all out in front of Trump like that. I mean, truly, I want to give Brett Barris credit on that, on that interview, um, which is not something I'm particularly inclined to do. But he did show among the ways that you can effectively interview such a person, right? Brett Baer did not come across as neutral, per se, right, in that interview. He did not come across as this, he wasn't someone who was so worried he's going to be attacked as the liberal media that he pulled his punches. He laid out in devastating detail how the things Donald Trump was saying were just made up, that were, they were not true, they weren't based in fact. Um, and I think that, but the problem is when all we have is a 20 second clip, right? I, I come to this perspective in part as someone covering issues of race and justice over the years. And, you know, I get invited on shows or what, and it's like, well, explain the history of race and law enforcement and black people in 27 seconds. Okay. Now what does it mean for Biden? And it's like, well, there's just, and again, it's not the fault <laughs> of the interviewer or of the, it's that this, this format could never provide an ability to fully contextualize in a way that doesn't sound like me just riffing as opposed mm. to, well, actually, each of these sentences has footnotes, <laughs> right? That I'm not <laughs> just calling this person a nativist or a lot. No, 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 no. There's, <laughs> this is a, a, a distinction that has been factually earned. You're just reminding me of the weekend uh, of the El Paso massacre. It was a Saturday night, and then I was on CNN Sunday morning. And you were on with me. And I was probably one of those guys asking you to explain it all in 27 <laughs> seconds. You gave me more time than most. But yes, I, I, you know, <laughs> it's the nature of the media. You know what you said that morning, Wes? You said, I don't know how many bodies we have to see. You know, you were, you, what you were saying was, how many shootings does it have to take 
before people are going to come to grips with white supremacy. And that's what that's what that story was about. And you knew it even the, the, the morning after. And let's be clear. It's extremely important for us as journalists to be skeptical, to chase down the facts, to do the rigorous labor of figuring out who really did this and why and how. And by the way, understanding that that skepticism is important because sometimes the people whose job it is to tell us get it wrong, right? And I think too often we spend the first however long in fact-finding, as we should. Right. We spend the second however long in in this, this is so horrible, it's unthinkable, whatever should we do? And then we quickly jump to the political fight about it, right? And we skip mm. this step of like fully contextualizing, right? That El Paso or Buffalo or Charleston or Tree of Life, they fit in a historical context. Well, you, you just joined American University uh, teaching courses there. You're now the executive editor at the Investigative Reporting Workshop at AAU. So what do you tell students how, how not to pull punches uh, in the way we're describing? You know, I really do think that at the core of all of this is rigor. Uh, Kevin Merida, who's now the executive editor of the LA Times, was the managing editor of the Washington Post for a long time, was famous for when you walk into his office with a question about journalism. How do we frame this story or this person saying this and this person saying that? Or what do we do about? And at the post, you're talking about some pretty high level debates about things of real consequence, right? And he very often would say, it sounds like we need some more reporting. And I do think that so many of our journalistic thrashings around how do we describe a thing or what can we say about it or what do, how do we frame or how do we, a lot of it is downstream of us not having done enough journalism. That instead of, you know, as an example I use from my career and my body of work a lot, having gone from politics to covering race and justice and being in Ferguson and elsewhere and then doing big policing data projects, we wrote stories where we quoted one side saying, black men are being executed in the streets every day by police, and then quoting another sign saying, these police shootings never happen. And then we went out and we did a bunch of journalism to figure out which was true. We went and figured out the answer to the question. That we didn't have to, we, we, got, we pushed to try to get to a point where we didn't have to frame this as a some say and these say and what's the, well, no, what is true, right? Is the attack leveled by the president yesterday, is it definitionally racist or xenophobic? And if we don't trust our ability to read the dictionary, there's a remarkable body of experts on these issues, right? Who we can call, who've written books, who can place things in a context, right? Well, is this thing true or is it not? Not that critics say is a lie. Or, well, is it true or is it not, right? Based on our reporting, what does our reporting lead us to believe? And, and if we don't feel comfortable making a determination, very often, not always, but very often, it's because we didn't do the reporting. It's because we're just trying to get this thing out the door in tomorrow's paper, on the internet, and we didn't actually make all the phone calls to figure out what the truth is, right? And when people say things, have we interrogated to make sure, not that we're just checking a box, well, I quoted a Trump supporter, so check, is what they're saying true, right? That matters as much more than anything else. That nothing we put out, nothing that we give the privilege of our platform should be demonstrably false, right? Like if they're saying it in the newspaper, it needs to be true. 
<laughs> and if they're saying it on live television, it needs to be true. And I think we've got a responsibility to deal with that. Hmm. As you can tell, I could talk to you about this for hours, uh, <laughs> but I'll let you get back to your work. Uh, Wesley Lowry, thank you so much. Great talking with you. Of course, Brian. Thanks so much. Thanks for checking the book out and thanks for this conversation. And again, that was Wesley Lowry, author of American White Lash. This episode was produced by Michael May. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. And we had engineering assistance from Gabe Caroga and mixing by Bob Mallory. I'm Brian Stelter. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Stelter. You'll probably find me on threads also now that that's launching into the world. And you can email me anytime, bstelter at gmail.com. Send your feedback about this episode and what you want to hear and who you want to hear from on future episodes. We'll be back in your podcast feed next week. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.